Hey, listeners, we want to give a content warning for this episode because we will be discussing sexual harassment, sex slavery, and childhood violence. Hello, and welcome to JK is Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties read YA fantasy through a critical lens. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And this fortnight, we're discussing Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo, the first book in the Six of Crows duology, and kind of the fourth book in the Grishaverse series. In this story, a group of 16 criminals come together to pull off an impossible heist. There's betrayal, magic, and a slight hint of romance. It was a super fast-paced read. The action never really stops. Initial reactions. I love this book in this series. I think the characters are so flawed and nuanced and interesting, and I care about them. Most of them. And <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Matthias. Sorry, not sorry. Um, and I don't know. I just thought it's there's twists and turns. It keeps you guessing. I couldn't see a lot of the things coming. And I'm excited to talk about it with you because I know what your feelings were about the <laughs> original Grisha trilogy. And I'm excited for our conversation. I think this book brings a lot of really important topics to the table. I love this book. I didn't love the Grishaverse series, as you know. Um, so I kind of kept pushing off Six of Crows on our reading you schedule. You really did. <laughs> you really did. You're like, mm, I know. We'll let's do, do Akamath. Let's do something else. I just was, I did not have high hopes. But everything I disliked about the first series is much better. And all those things I would say are like, quote unquote, fixed in this one. Uh, the characters are complicated. They're traveling, but things are actually happening. <laughs> <laughs> like we don't get this travel story where like they're just walking around talking, doing nothing. So it wasn't boring. Uh, the dregs are ruthless, which we rarely get from our main characters. So I especially love that. And I am so ready to read Crooked Kingdom now. I might read it before it's on our schedule because <laughs> I like this book so much. Time to talk about all things world building in through the wardrobe. So one of the things that I especially appreciate about this novel and this duology in general is how Six of Crows expands our knowledge of the Grishaverse immensely. We are not in Ravka anymore. We're in Kerch. But we also um, get flashbacks from different characters in different places, right? We see Inej's flashbacks in Ravka. We see um, Matthias's flashbacks in Fierda. We see... Um, Jesper and Novia Zem and Nina. Nina also in Ravka, right? Mm -hmm. And what I thought was really fascinating about the world building in this novel in particular was how related it is to the different religions of the different cultures. So Kirch strikes me as, and correct me if I'm wrong or if you think it, it's different, but is like a Netherlands-esque Amsterdam style, but like also Las Vegas. Definitely. And I don't know if actually Amsterdam is similar to Las Vegas. So maybe Las Vegas is just like Amsterdam instead. So Kirch is kind of Netherlands, Amsterdam slash Las Vegas, because there's like a red light district and lots of gambling and stuff. So I don't know if Amsterdam has a gambling. I don't know either. No idea. But um, 
the Netherlands also had an enormous, the Dutch had an enormous commercial empire too. So that kind of reminds me of like the trade and the commerce that's so important to Kurt, the Kirch. And the Kirch equate work with prayer. And then their primary deity is called Gazen, and it's the god of commerce. And the, the, the Kirch buy and sell stocks at the Church of Barter. So that's thought that like all lined up pretty seamlessly. Yeah. And Fierda seems Icelandic, Scandinavian, and or Siberian inspired. And they have a monotheistic, they're monotheistic, but more in a more like spiritual way. Because right. we have gel. That's the like life force that runs through all things. The Fierdans pray or say prayers before they cut down trees. And they think of dying as quote unquote taking root. And the Druskela have this really in- I like relation this close relationship with wolves they're their right. partners or whatever they're like hunting partners i mean hunting he- other human beings so that's yeah, problematic not great. <laughs> not great and inej also is suli and so what we see of the suli we get from her perspective and she grew up in ravka on the shores of ravka traveling around and so then she prays to ravkin saints right so this connection between the world building and the religions i think is even was was there in the original grisha trilogy but i think it's even more prominent yeah even like um inej is like one of her her knives is named sancta alina Mm -hmm. i was like wow that was really fast for like alina to become like not a saint but like codified and like wide-ranging as a person of power kind of which was really interesting and surprising because i think Nina talks about having been at Nikolai's coronation. Yes. So obviously this isn't that far gone from when the end of the Grishaverse series was. Right. And then Alina, for everyone besides her like inner circle, she's been martyred. Right. And is, you know, Sancta Alina. Yeah. She doesn't she ceases to exist as the Sun Summoner. Yeah. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> The Grisha in Ketterdam are indentured servants or slaves. Um, so this, so the changes between the Grisha we saw in the Grishaverse and in this series aren't too different uh, because we see like the shoe or killing the Grisha. The Fjordans are still capturing them and apparently now experimenting on them. Um, so this book seems to take place not after lo- not long after the events of the Grishaverse. So that's not really surprising. But I think I guess I was a little surprised about like the extent to which they were like captured and used within the society. Mm-hmm. I think that this book gives us a more background information as to mm-hmm. why Ravka is seen as such a haven for Grisha right. in the first place. Because if they're treated so poorly elsewhere, right. enslaved and killed and hunted down and experimented on elsewhere, then it really... It gives more, it legitimates Ravka's, I guess, Ravka's project of like the second army and right. being a safe haven for Grisha. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this thing of indentured servants and slavery. So in this world, the difference between the two aren't really that different. Um, in Ketterdam, most of the indentured servants have such bad quote unquote contracts that they will never be able to pay for their freedom. Inez's contract was deliberately in a language she couldn't read so that she wouldn't know the terms of her slavery. And in that way, the person who has bought indentured servants gets paid twice, once um, for the work of the person that the person they bought does, and again, for the person's freedom. And in Inej's case, that was more than she was bought for because interest. So it was a really weird way to like do these depictions of like the difference between slavery and indentured servitude and show like how similar they actually are, where there's not really that much freedom for the person in either case 
Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me how sharecropping and yeah. uh, like slavery, chattel yeah. slavery were in theory different, but they right. didn't. It didn't allow for really any economic or social mobility right. in, a, in meaningful ways for people of color, for black people in the United States. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think we need to insert an obligatory <laughs> anti-capitalist, Kelly's anti-capitalist rant, TM, about how interest shouldn't be a fucking thing. Having money shouldn't entitle a person to make more money from people with less money. I don't think we get into this as much as I thought we would in the book, but kind of this distinction between sex slavery and prostitution and that's probably something that people talk about in like discussions of like the red light district in Amsterdam and even currently with like trying to decriminalize prostitution in the United States or these just debates between do you legalize it do you decriminalize it what do you do right yeah and I obviously don't have those answers (laughs) I don't know I don't know what the answer is but we do see like this distinction whereas uh, it seems that um, while Nina is not a prostitute, she does work in a brothel doing something different. And that was a choice he, she made. Whereas Inej is sold into slavery at the menagerie. And she's like, she doesn't want to do that. So it's a difference, I guess, really in choice, like what it, what your choice to do what you want with your body. Mm-hmm. And I get the impression that a lot of these brothels that brothels that we see in the barrel in Kerch and Ketterdam are work because of this slave trade. Right. It's part of their indentured servitude or whatever. Which is slavery. As as you just said, (laughs) slavery. Yes. Yeah, it's just slavery. (laughs) Yeah. So it was interesting to see this like kind of discussion come up a little bit in this book. Mm -hmm. Do we get more of it in the second book? We do. And we actually, if you think about what Inej wants to do afterwards, she wants to get a ship and be like take down all of the slave ships. She's breaking the wheel. She's Daenerys. Yeah, break the wheel. (laughs) And don't give her a shitty ending. Yeah. I'm I'm assuming we won't get that kind of ending for Inej. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Game of Thrones spoilers. Oh, God. It's too late now. It's too late. Yeah. Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. I love that we learn a lot more about Grisha magic in this book. And, um, for example, even before Perem, which I'm going to, which we'll talk about, but even before that, Nina works on emotions, which is pretty cool. It seems like the Corporal Kai have been more trained since the events in the first Grisha trilogy. Um, so Nina's like manipulating different neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, which don't get specifically mentioned in the book, but that's the impression I got. Um, I just like that's so fucking cool and can I have one so she's basically doing the work of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication yeah I mean as long as you pay her well like go ahead (laughs) and also it mentions in the book that trained healers can change people's blood types so that transfusions don't have negative effects on people which is really interesting to think about I guess they make them into whatever, whatever the universal donor is kind of right you could just you just need to learn to change to one blood type, and that's the universal donor. <laughs> I think we have to talk about Jirda Perem and yeah. its effects on Grisha magic. So, as we discussed in previous episodes about shadow and bone, et cetera, et cetera, the Grisha manipulate matter on an atomic level, which is what they call the quote unquote small science. And 
when they are in Perem, those manipulations become faster and more precise. So it doesn't just make the Grisha more powerful. It actually just like explodes their like mind capacities. It's like they can tap into more of their mind than they used to be able to. And the drug alters Grisha perceptions in this way. So that's like, and we get access to this. We can see this with Nina um, explaining how she feels after taking the drug. So she says that everyone has a different heartbeat and that they sound like you can tell who they are by their heartbeat. Squalors can fly. Tide makers can walk through walls and like mist people into nothingness. Did that remind you of Resand? Oh, of course it reminded okay. me of Resand. <laughs> Corporalka can, tr- can control people's minds. This is a serious up in the ante on the magical powers in this book. I guess the book kind of takes place in like um, pre-technology, like modern technology age, obviously. I don't really know about like history very much, so I don't know when. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> but it's interesting because I wonder if part of what that um, Perem does is allow them to better understand science and that's what better allows them to understand like maybe they can see the movement of particles better because Nina talks about being able to see like the way the air moves when she talks Mm -hmm. so I wonder if there's something about that that lets them see things on a more atomic level and that's what allows them to manipulate them more precisely it makes me think about how different animals have Um, more rods and cones in their Mm -hmm. eyes so they can see different colors that we can't see or different types of light like Mm -hmm. ultraviolet or Or um, some dogs have like a really strong sense of smell right like much better than humans even better than cats Mm -hmm. so just like how perception isn't limited to what anthropomorphic or anthropocentric visions of what perception is yeah exactly that's totally limited yeah and we're confined by that we can't really escape beyond that except with like this drug for example and haven't there also been like wasn't bradley cooper in a movie about a dr- oh yeah taking a drug that makes you really smart what was yeah. it called limitless i never saw it i think i did but i don't remember it then they made it into a tv show which i also never saw so that's how good it was neither of us know anything about it except that yeah except that i saw it and i don't remember it so <laughs> not very good <laughs> one other thing that i thought was really i'm gonna say interesting Mm, we're back to interesting (laughs) (laughs) about the magic in this book is that um it's actually really threatening to the world order because especially with perem if fabricators can create gold it's no longer any different than i don't know dirt or whatever it's just another mineral which is what it actually is it's only valuable because humans have given it value and based our economies off of it you mean it will ruin capitalism and for some reason that's bad no that's not a bad thing it's <laughs> a great thing do it <laughs> yeah that's true i have some things to say about that when we talk about race so <laughs> but then also if tide makers can walk through walls then you can't keep you can't like hoard your money from the masses so yeah. i guess it also ruins privacy in a sense but only if people do bad things with it it's so. already ruined with google on your phone Yeah, that's fine. I don't care. (laughs) Wands away. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Ren. So because we're dealing with antiheroes in Six of Crows, our perceptions of what constitutes villainy are more complicated. It doesn't have this like good versus evil. It's not as black and white, I would say. Do you agree with that? I would agree with that. I wish our more of our main characters were like these characters. I think I like anti-hero stories a lot. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. You like no, the ruthless, I the do. violent. <laughs> <laughs> so Kaz might do some pretty awful shit, but just because he uses violence doesn't 
that doesn't matter so much as the motivation behind these violent means that people are using in the books. So Kaz, Inez, Jesper, Wyland, Nina, and I would say to maybe to a lesser extent, Matthias. So like all of our six have what we can describe as more mo- noble motivations than these true villains. So yes, they're trying to break into a prison, which like prison abolition. So who cares? Um, and get a bunch of money. But Inej wants to stop slavery. Jesper wants to get out of debt. Kaz wants to enact revenge against the person who killed his brother or he thinks is responsible for killing his brother. And um, I don't know, Wyland's going to be like, fuck you to his dad. His dad is awful. The worst. Yeah. I don't know what Nina wants to do with her money. Go back to Ravka? I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Or Matthias either. Now he's got no nothing. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they did it for the money. Yeah. But they're certainly more noble than these like true villains in the series, which are Pekka Rollins, Van Eck, the Fjerdens. Am I missing anyone? I think that's all of them. I mean, and the person who's in charge of the menagerie. I don't remember her name. Helene or something. Yeah, Tonto Helene. Also yeah. that one. And so I would say that those villains act like Pekka Rollins and Van Eck act out of immense greed. Mm-hmm which is different than the six who want money, but to like get out of their awful circumstances right. rather than Pekka Rollins and Van Eck want more money just to have more money, I guess. Right. And the Kaz wants money. Like he calls himself greedy, but it seems to be like a stability factor. Like he wants a stable life maybe. Well, it's into like fill the void of all of his like trauma and paranoia right. and awful. He needs therapy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the, in the Fjordans, as opposed to Pekka Rollins and Van Eck, act out of fear. Right part of like this patriotism there's like um militaristic and i don't know fanatic you could say patriotism yeah Yeah. and i would say to an extent there are a lot of institutions that are the villains in this story so like how the class system works in ketterdam the enslavement of the grisha sex slavery and the prejudice of the fierda fierdans which led to capturing and experimenting on grisha so a lot of it is like the way this world works is kind of creating these situations that have put our characters in like bad situations i think that's an excellent point and it shows how the i guess discrete characters that we get who show up as villains like pecker Rollins and van Eck, are actually just cogs in larger mm-hmm. institutions yeah i think that's a really important point and the same thing with the druskela so they're a religious order like a monastic type religious order that practices restraint like they don't eat sweets or have that much sex and they're but they're on this like ethnic cleansing mission to capture grisha so that's another to your point right that these institutions or i guess how like norms governmental cultural norms Mm -hmm. are really the villains in the story yeah what did you think of the druskela i'm curious hmm now I'm reading what you wrote, so I'll let, uh-huh. let me let let me let me let, let you go. <laughs> let me let you go. Okay. <laughs> For me, I saw the Druskela as a commentary about the vulnerability of young men to radicalization. And young not white like, men. Young white men, thank you. Mm-hmm. To radicalization and not like in the good leftist way. Yeah. <laughs> so it reminded me of like red pill incel stuff, like on the deep internet. Proud boys, white nationalists. All right, those red racists. pills and incels are like on Reddit, so it's not that deep. <laughs> like, no, but like also on 4chan. Yeah, and yeah, stuff for like sure. That. But they had to kick them off Reddit recently. They kicked the red, like there was a red pill subreddit and they kicked them off. Good. Yeah, of course it's good. I'm like, why'd it take so long? Together? Because Reddit is like barely monitored, you know? Yeah. I would agree with that 
I think I thought of it as like a commentary on these um, like super patriarchal religions more than on this. But I definitely think you're right because we mostly see like these young white men and what they become when they're scared of a group of other people more than being led by their religion. Because Matthias seems to come to like terms with you can be religious and not commit genocide you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> like those things don't go hand in hand necessarily <laughs> not necessarily yeah though he does make those comments and why he wants nina not to kill them at the right. end Which, like let her kill them <laughs> yeah i mean his argument seemed kind of weak to me like you could convince me yeah it's like only because you literally saved each other's lives like what are they gonna go to also the- you're in love with her so that makes a huge difference totally. like you you caught feelings so I don't think they're all going to catch feelings for Nina. That would put you in a bad situation, Matthias. We have another Kelly's research rabbit hole (laughs) TM this episode. And I got to thinking about Jirda Parem and how it can, we can kind of read it as a parallel to the opioid epidemic in the U S Van Eck and the Fjordans want to keep manufacturing drugs that are highly addictive so they can attain power. So for Vanek, this particularly includes profits. And the Fjordan and the shoe approaches to Parem make me think about how governments have often been involved in the manufacture and distribution of drugs to control marginalized communities. Brum, the leader of the Druskela, says that Parem makes Grisha what they were always meant to be, which is controllable. So see the United States war on drugs, um, like putting a bunch of really awful stuff like drugs and guns into marginalized communities and then therefore like which then justifies the over policing and mass incarceration of those communities sometimes even in other countries communities yes totally and tangentially related contemporary politics rant joe biden was instrumental in the passing of the 1994 crime bill which is like along with then president bill clinton which created which led to the explosion of mass incarceration right. of poc yeah and uh he doesn't seem to be recanting on that so i mean are you surprised hillary didn't apologize for calling young black men super predators oh no she still won the democratic ticket i'm not i'm not surprised at all and because we're coming into elections in 2020 uh fuck that yeah no sorry joe sorry not sorry actually yeah i'm not surprised especially uh I think he also said what happened with Anita Hill was bad, but didn't apologize for it. No. So no. I'm like saying something's bad is not an apology. So where's your, I'm sorry. Another, so the, we have the Fjordans in the shoe, like the governments creating and promoting the manufacture of drugs and distribution of drugs. And then we also have private citizens doing that for economic gain. So that's Van Eck in this story. And, his plans for Perem make me think about current, like the current court cases against the Sackler family, which is the family behind Purdue Pharma, which created and distributed OxyContin and essentially lied about how addictive it was. And the Sackler family are some of the most culpable parties behind the opioid epidemic in the U.S. And they've reached several uh, multi-million dollar settlements with, with various states i think and other like there's a really good john oliver that talks about the opioid crisis but also mm-hmm. the sackler family in particular so we'll link to that in the show notes because it goes over like a very long history of them basically being trash people and ruining their garbage people's lives. as of 2016 they were worth 13 billion dollars and they sell these painkillers all over the world and they're still the sole controllers of purdue pharma mm-hmm. and 
what I thought was an interesting parallel to Van Eck is that they're also like art patrons. Right. We're talking about him. Mm-hmm. Like Kaz, Kaz stole his decapel, yeah. Van Eck's decapel. And the Sackler family has like a wing at the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York named after them. I think they had something at like the Louvre or something in another country and that that museum took their name. Oh, the Guggenheim, I think. The Guggenheim. And they took them. At, like they renamed it or whatever because people were very upset rightfully so so like pe- they're just making their money off of people dying yeah they don't care no they don't care at it's all it's like the insulin prices mm-hmm. and we'll link to um plenty of <laughs> mm, really frustrating and awful accounts of all of this bullshit yeah in the show notes but good to know very good the more you know We interrupt these deep cuts to bring you Show Us Your Fix. Which characters do you think deserve their own storyline? Let us know by finding us on Twitter or Instagram at JKMagicPod. Jesper and Wylan, obviously. They're so adorable. (laughs) I love it. And my note says, but Kaz, though. (laughs) I really like Kaz. I don't really, I don't know that I care that much about who he ends up with that much, but I'm just like, oh, he's so, I just like him. I'll take Kaz fanfic. He doesn't have to be with anyone. He can just be by himself. I'm perfectly happy with that. (laughs) Okay, back to the deep cuts. Because just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, and gender. And in this case, also minds and bodies and incarceration. (laughs) This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. Let's start with gender. Let's. So Matthias says that women aren't supposed to fight. This is him talking about women fighting in the Fjordan army because they don't. The Fjordans are much more patriarchal than the society we see in Ketterdam in a way. I think your in a way qualifier is really important because we don't see any of the powerful merchers who are women. I mean, not that having gender parity at the highest levels of an exploitative capitalist system is like that awesome. Right. Um Likewise, none of the so-called barrel bosses or like gang leaders are women that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, the only woman in Ketterdam that we see who has a, like a modicum of class privilege or economic um, power is Tanta Helene. And she's the abusive madam of the menagerie brothel. So yeah. also not a great possibility model. No, well, but it does show women can be equally as terrible as men. Yep. <laughs> I wonder about the other brothels and the barrel, if any of if they're run by women as well. Although none of the brothels really seem to be letting people be sex workers there by choice. so Or for a living wage. Yeah, so I'm not sure that that would be any better at all. Nope. And besides the barrel bosses all being men, the dregs seem to be slightly less patriarchal. Mm-hmm. At least in the like foot soldier ranks. Right. There are women in the gang, but I was wondering if this is the case for other gangs too. I guess I, I just kind of assumed that all of the other members of rival gangs were men. I think I remember when they're getting on the ship to go to Fierda, one of the other gang members in like the, what are they, the Razor Gulls or mm-hmm. the yeah Razor Gulls. Dime something. Dime Lions. Dime Lions. I was like, that's a weird name. I think one of them was a woman, but now that I say that, I'm like, was it? Or did I just assume that for some reason? Because Inej, I don't know. Who was super badass, by the way. Like her and Nina are like really cool. 
when at the end when Nina is getting shot and then healing herself at the same time. Well, so badass. I know it was like, and I don't mean this in a bad way because I feel like sometimes people take this negatively, but it was like very cinematic, which I appreciated in that sense. Like I feel like you see that in movies sometimes. It's almost like Neo in the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the menagerie. Let's. I think this is important to go. I mean, it's obviously both gender and race, Mm -hmm. especially because the menagerie traffics in racialized fetishes. Right. That's it's called the house of exotics. Yeah. Literally exoticizing other people's races. Mm -hmm. And orientalizing in like Edward Said's um, conception of the word. And I thought this was. I guess magnified by the fact that they're literally the the sex workers are literally animalized, mm-hmm. like they're called by animal names: the Suli Lynx, the Kalish Mare, the Fjerden Wolf, etc. And they wear costumes and body body paint that represent these animals. Yeah, it was just like the objectification of women, poor yeah. excellencia. But I don't. I also don't know that we had any male sex workers. I think we did at the. Um, I think we saw one example, like one brothel of male sex workers okay. who went to oh. Infierta mm-hmm. when they were going yeah. there for what was it called? Hoinkala or whatever. I just like, I saw those names and I was like, I don't know what that says. <laughs> I wish I had listened to the audiobook along because I was like, I don't know how to say a lot of stuff in this book, <laughs> which is fine. Inej talks about having to be twice as tough to avoid harassment from people when she's in the barrel um and i think this speaks a lot to the harassment both physical and sexual harassment that women experience on a day-to-day basis so inez says she has to be twice as tough to avoid harassment because she's with the drags and she is not really part of any um, brothel and she's part of the dregs but like she doesn't wear the tattoos or anything but i thought it was interesting because a part of me is like "Mm, women alone always have to be twice as tough like it's just not safe out there. And twice as vigilant. Yes, yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. Which is why I don't, I mean, Inej's superpower of like walking along roofs and stuff would be was so cool to me. It would be, that would be so helpful. And she's carrying like six knives. I was like, I have to learn how to like do that. Like, you see why she reminds me I of you. Know, <laughs> I know. Um, but I thought that was really cool because she's super tough and she's not really a vulnerable character. Like we don't see her being like, overly emotional or any of the things that i sometimes think overly emotional <laughs> okay not, but some of the things you sometimes see being like packed into the part of being what it means to be a woman like right. we don't really get that from her and i kind of appreciated a character who was just i don't know she was a person and like i don't know i just liked it stoic yeah I appreciated that. I don't think we get depictions of women who are not like emotional. They're like overly romanticized, like overly romanticizing their relationships. Like Mm -hmm. we get that a lot, especially in YA, which often focuses so much on romance. And we don't have that with Inish. And I really appreciated that. Definitely. We get a little bit of that at the end, I guess, with the Inish and Kaz ship. But um, I agree with you that I I really um, appreciated the character building for Mm -hmm. the Women in particular right. didn't focus too, too much on their romantic relationships. Well, especially both her and Nina, Inej and Nina, are not willing to really 
be like a consolation prize, you know, like they're mm-hmm. not going to be with Matthias and Kaz if they don't benefit from it. Also, they're not going to be with them just for the sake of being with them, which I do think sometimes happens because it's like, you're here, you're the only other person. So let's put them together. Like, at least, especially for Nina, we like, she has other options. I'm not saying Inej doesn't, but we don't really see her interact with other dudes or ladies. Other She's than probably Nina. had enough of people. I respect that. Yeah, I'm I, I'm not sure I'd want anything ever mm-hmm. again. So mm-hmm. she's a real strong character, even like having gone through being a sex slave. I cannot imagine. And she seemed to come out of the other side of that being really strong. Let's go to class. I mentioned this earlier in world building, but Gazin, the Church of Barter, etc., all of those aspects of like Kirch's religiosity. I think Bardugo captures the religious fanaticism with which rich people cling to capitalism just really well in this book. It, I don't know that it just struck me as that she did that really effectively mm-hmm. by literally making it part of the religion of this country. And in a similar vein, at the end of the novel, Van Eck says he's blessed by Gazin because of his wealth. Right. And so th- this reminded me of, um, I guess, genera- generational legacies of wealth and just because you have economic privilege thinking that that um, entitles you to more wealth. Did it remind you a little bit of like the, what is that? So your seed stuff. Oh my God. Yeah. Those, um, what are they? It's the prosperity gospels or something. Oh yeah. We should link to that John Oliver episode. Yeah, it's, it's a so really funny. good one. It's, well, it's like weeks worth. Cause I'm just it's like, so funny. can't believe he created a church. Yeah. These like nonprofit churches that exploit other people. Yeah, and for ask sure. Them to send them their money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I really ac- appreciate how the novel equates gambling at the Crow Club with buying stocks at the exchange. Capitalism equals theft of surplus labor. The Kirch reactions to slavery reminded me of U.S. reactions to slavery. So the Kirch publicly denounced slavery. And you mm. perpetuate it with indentured servitude and imprisonment and the gladiator ring in the bottom of the Hellgate prison. Right. Because slavery and imprisonment are supremely profitable. And that's what they worship is they worship profit, quite literally, the God right. of commerce. And for me, this brought was brought me to or had me thinking about the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration of people of color in the United States, for one. And while like people are all land of the free home of the brave bullshit at the same time you know right flyovers at your football matches for your football games and so like the u.s companies exploit labor in the global south and elsewhere and there are still confederate monuments and the u.s has never officially apologized for slavery or paid reparations yeah and at the same time they're like supposedly the bastion of democratic ideals and freedom Mm -mm. it's it's all a lie this country is built on lies (laughs) all the lies <laughs> maybe reparations in the future though we have some candidates we do talking about reparations okay they can stop talking and start paying yeah yeah all right i don't know about cory booker and camilla like they have less responsibility there to be paying anything but like you know we'll see i thought wyland is a great depiction of the belief that the upper class people have when they don't understand what lower class people have to do to survive. I really like the dichotomy between Wyland and Jesper. And Jesper says to Wyland on page 194, if you aren't born with every advantage, you learn 
to take your chances. Jesper is talking about gambling, but I think this can apply in many ways. Um, whereas sometimes people um, with lower socioeconomic status, sometimes, you know, they get pulled into a system where they sell drugs and they steal cars or, you know, just there's so many things. And I would really recommend watching the movie Dope if you haven't seen it. It's a really good movie about how like a successful an academically successful high school student got pulled into um, selling drugs and as he's like trying to get into Harvard and all these things. But really, sometimes your options are so limited by your circumstances that you don't have other options. And I thought that was a really good show of those two sides of that coin. This also reminded me of um, when economically privileged people judge mm-hmm. people with lower socioeconomic status what, what they do with their money yeah like if you didn't have an iphone then you wouldn't be on right. i don't know welfare yeah like fuck you you don't get to decide what yeah. you what other people do with their money exactly um there should be an income cap like yeah whatever. but also those are resources like right if you don't have tv and internet like you can't watch the news you can't do your homework like if you don't have a phone how are you calling calling for emergency services like there's so many reasons how can you be contacted for job interviews yeah exactly you, yeah but also those things look bad like if you don't have a nice car if you don't have a phone if you don't have a computer you can't apply for jobs like you don't have a nice car. They're going to think certain things about you when you go in for a job interview. Like there are lots of clothes. reasons. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it is funny how like rich people sometimes see poor people wasting what they have, little they have when really it's like they need the same things you need. You like just, quote unquote wasting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like they need the same things you need. You just, it means nothing to you to have them. Mm-hmm. And Wyland's pretty new to this mm-hmm. uh, less privileged life. Right. And we do see him come around and like starting to understand that, which I really appreciated. But I don't think you should have to experience those things in order to feel sympathy or empathy for people in those situations. So, Also, Jesper says this before he learns that Wyland can't read. Yeah, he does. So I think that this gets a little bit more complicated later on. For sure. I would agree with that just a little note here that there's we've mentioned this several times already in the podcast but um enslaved indentured and imprisoned people being experimented on it's just like par for the course for history science like what are you doing leave people alone (laughs) science is not objective it is not neutral it has always been tied to the history of racism yeah race science and all that other shit but also capitalism like the money goes in to say that certain things will make certain things happen but companies are paying for that so yeah like how you have to take the like um what is it oh pfizer the um depression <laughs> what am i trying to say oh the depression, like the depression survey sur- yeah the depression and anxiety surveys yeah, at the doctor's office yeah and they're created by drug companies oh i did not realize yeah that. at the bottom of the thing when i took one it said like pfizer interesting and so then to like push their own drugs yeah or i think there was like scientific research done to say that like oatmeal will keep you full for longer it turns out quaker paid for that scientific research Mm -hmm. and i'm like well it doesn't one so that's just a lie i'm always hungry after i eat oatmeal i am too and i that's why i looked it up and then found out that quaker paid for it and i was like oh of course (laughs) it's confirmation bias We have a point in the book where Kaz and his brother Jordy are homeless, which 
we haven't read any books with homeless characters before. And that's re- that's true. I guess I haven't. I'm actually having a hard time thinking of any novel, any YA novels that I've read with um, characters who experience homelessness. Yeah, I can't think of any. I think um, we will link to some resources for team homelessness in the show notes. I think that's important in case anyone needs any help or more information to help someone else. Um, but yeah, I was glad that the book showed how not having a home can have a like the effects that it can have on your life and your opportunities and just access to things to resources absolutely and along the same lines when Jordy and Kaz were experiencing homelessness is when Jordy gets sick right and I think one thing I think the novel does really well is it shows that money is necessary to access health care mm-hmm. in this particular system and in right. our system right now yes. currently um if Jordy and Kaz had had money, they probably mm-hmm. would have been able to have medical care yeah. and Jordy might not have died. Yeah. I don't know. I'll look for resources about this, but um, it might also be a good time to link to resources for access to free health care. Yes. Um, so we'll link to that in the show notes. Are you ready to talk about race? Always. Always. <laughs> yeah, you are always ready. To I'm talk always about ready. Race. I'm ready to disparage white people at <laughs> <in> every turn. <laughs> uh, when I was reading the book, I got the sense that Inej was associated with the Romani. Did you feel that way as well? Mm-hmm. I think it's Roma. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so there are definitely some areas where I feel like um, that culture is being painted on top of the Suli. Um, and there those might be some stereotypes. I looked up some things about stereotypes about the um, Roma people, such as being fortune tellers, um, traveling in brightly co- colored caravans that sort of thing um but it does seem through the limited research i did that throughout history the roma people have been enslaved which we see in six of crows as well as overtly sexualized depiction of women from the people outside that group um which we see with inej at the menagerie uh so i don't i don't think i've read a story about the roma people before have you no i don't think so the only other um time i think we got close was in saba tahir's novels with mm. the tribes people yeah but that was like a mix of roma and indigenous people right. i don't know like i mean roma are indigenous to, right i believe they're from i just looked it up i think it said india and the middle east yeah. there was like a lot of different places mm-hmm. absolutely and i think this is also a good moment to say that if you've been saying things like <laughs> chipped or gypsy stop saying that because they are derogatory yeah they are so yeah post haste strike those from the record from your vocabulary yeah forevermore um but it was also the first time that i've seen a character described with bronze skin where their skin was actually bronze thanks i know (laughs) i want to say thank you but also i'm like i have other problems so we'll talk about that (laughs) later um speaking of which jesper is black but (laughs) On page 232, Nina says to Matthias, because our crime is existing, our crime is what we are. Or what, yeah, what we are. And she's talking about the Grisha. But in this story, the Grisha are racialized. And I think that can be extrapolated to the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder of POCs by police and white people, as well as the unfairness of our criminal justice system toward minorities. And not just POCs, but other minority groups as well, marginalized groups as well. 
But I have to say this makes me a little bit uncomfortable having a white author and mostly white characters using this language to describe the inequitable state of being for POCs for the purposes of a group of people who are able to hide what the world sees about them that makes them different. For the Grisha, that would be their powers. Right. Yeah, because they can conceal that. That's how Wynina is talking about there's um, spies inserted right. in Fierda. Yeah. Um, the one POC Grisha we have in this story is Jesper, and he barely has any powers. This, for me, was one of the biggest disappointments of this story. Why is our only POC Grisha struggling with gambling addiction? Why is our one POC Grisha the one who gave away the plans, i.e. untrustworthy? Why is our one POC Grisha the one who doesn't know how to use their powers, i.e. unintelligent or lazy? Jesper fell into all these stereotypes that we have for Black people, and then it was Nina who got to say that Grisha were murdered for existing. I'm not saying there that wasn't happening to the Grisha, but it was a huge letdown to see those words come from a white character for me. Uh, this was made worse when Nina said that she understands Matthias's fear when the Grisha have extra powers. It just left a bad taste in my mouth, especially when you take into the account that Jesper and Inej like stick out in their group because they're brown. When they're in Fierda. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying this. I This is not something that I recognized when I was reading. Um, but when you put it all, when, when you list all those, you know, all of Jesper's character, you know, I don't know, characteristics, I guess. Yeah. It does. When they, when I hear them listed out like that, it definitely is strikes me as st- like falling into stereotypes and really negative stereotypes, right? Especially and damaging we, ones. Well, like we don't really have POC Grisha in the Grisha verse book, so then this is like the first POC we get in the books that has powers, and then it's like all these negative things. I was just like really frustrated. We'll see more about jesper good and his powers in the next book i'm glad i'm assuming that he's gonna get some help from nina because in the end he's like i want to learn how to use my powers like all those things Mm -hmm. we'll see how it goes and i know they're making an effort when they do the tv show to make more characters um like the care the cast of characters more diverse so we'll see how that goes as well (laughs) eye roll (laughs) i have an eye roll (laughs) where diversity comes in when they're taking white characters and making them poc i'm like i don't have high hopes because people are going to be pissy about it and they're like that's not how they looked in the story and we'll see we'll see you want to talk about bodies and minds in a more ability slash mental wellness sense let's talk about it there's a lot to unpack here there's so much let's start with kaz yes um what a fascinating character as far as ability and mental illness goes yeah he uses he has a phobia of touching other people Mm -hmm. which i looked it up it's called hafophobia and it's the fear of touching or being touched, and it actually exists. And the symptoms Kaz exhibits, like dizziness or fainting, seem to be pretty medically accurate mm-hmm. with what actually happens to people with hypophobia. And Kaz sees his gloves and phobia of t- and as weaknesses. Right. But then what I really love about this character is that he uses those um, to and his ruthlessness to create a legend about himself as dirty hands. And so it gives him... It actually, it was me. It actually gives him, it actually gives him more power that way. It makes him, makes people wonder about him and he never has to tell them what is actually behind the gloves. It's funny because we don't get that story about what happened to him until after they're on their ship 
on the ship on the way to Fierda, I'm pretty sure. We get it in different little parts, yeah. Okay. But when he is like torturing Oman, the person who worked with Pekka Rollins, mm-hmm. and he like gouges his eyes. Oh my out. god. Oh my god. I forgot that that happened. I know. And I didn't know like whether we should talk about it in villainy, but I don't really feel like Kaz is a villain. So I was like, YOLO. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, like. I feel like that's not the first time Cass has done that because otherwise, how would you know how to do that so effectively? Yeah, you're so that, that's so true. But like he literally it's funny because the gloves are a way for him not to have to touch people and he calls himself dirty hands. But by using the gloves, he also technically always keeps his hands clean. Like there's no blood on his hands ever if he was always wearing the gloves. So kind of interesting. He's an interesting character. He's so fascinating. He always he also has chronic pain. Yeah, he's a character with chronic pain, which I don't think I've seen any of those in YA before. Mm-mm. And he also uses a cane to walk. Yeah, and then turns that cane into a weapon and mm-hmm. uses it as again part of this legend he creates for himself and part of how he like is his like badass person out in the world. Yeah, I don't think we often talk about authors and their interconnectedness to their characters a lot, and I know there are different like veins of criticism about whether or not you should include like the author and their experiences and talking about books but i think we should for this case to mention that lee bardugo has walks with a cane i wonder if she like can pull hers apart and like stab people with it i hope so (laughs) she seems like the type (laughs) dirty hands (laughs) yeah because she has a disease where her bones are deteriorating that's correct i don't know okay i just know she uses a mobility device okay I think I looked it up and it's in the, it's in the book in the acknowledgements, but I think her bones are deteriorating, which she probably also, I think she also said in the acknowledgements that she deals with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that kind of contributes to her knowledge about what this would be like for Kaz in a way. Right. And I think it's so telling and also a vindication, I guess, of these experiences of disability when you don't, hardly ever see that in Mm -mm. in YA or in you know fiction in general Mm -hmm. on page 401 Kaz says it was a declaration there was no part of him that was not broken that had not healed wrong and there was no part of him that was not stronger for having been broken this also struck me as problematic I highlighted it in my audio okay I was like this Mm -hmm. feels wrong like this this makes me automatically takes me to the um, Sansa saying that she'd still be the little bird if yeah. she hadn't been, you know, <sighs> tortured and yeah. raped by Ramsay and sold into marriage with people she didn't want to be in marriage with. And yeah. like, ugh. I, I'm very conflicted about this. I do think that there's something to be said for resiliency mm-hmm. and for the strength of like that. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger sort of thing, um, which is like an annoying saying, but it does have some truth to it, right? I guess. Maybe. I don't know. Um, or maybe there's like a bent, not broken sort of. Yeah. Is that Hannah Gatsby? I think that's a Nanette. And some, it's also some like point. a dashboard confessional song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Modern prophets of our uh-huh. time. <laughs> what do you think about this? It's hard for me. And I'm guessing maybe part of the reason it's hard for you too is because we both suffer from an invisible illness. Right. And... I would never wish that on anyone or even myself. And I know that like, it's hard to, to 
take myself out of that mindset because it's something I have and I can't get rid of. So for me, I'm like, but I wouldn't wish I had it. I'm sure that in some ways it has made me a stronger person to have to deal with something that I'm going to deal with for the rest of my life. But I don't wish I had that. And like, I don't know. That's one of those hard things for me where people and in to her credit, like Lee Bardugo has a disability. So she knows what this is like for herself. Right. And maybe this is the way she feels about that. But for me, I'm just like, nah, no, thanks. I don't I would not I don't want this. It's such a personal thing. And it brings right. me back to our conversation that we had about Gentleman's Guide to yeah, Vice and Virtue exactly. and about Percy versus like Monty wanting to take away Percy's disability right. or Percy's illness. Mm-hmm. And I, I, there's just no neutral ground upon which to make right. a decision about this topic in particular. Either yeah. you um there's so many different types of disability mm-hmm. and illness to have. There's so many different relationships people have with their like own bodies and yeah. disability and illness. and Or cure. whether they consider what other people consider a disability even to be a disability. Right. Like you've mentioned about deaf, yeah, you know, deaf, the deaf culture, community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or you don't suffer from any of those. And then you're also making, then you're also like saying things about something you don't know about. I don't right. know. But like trauma could also be considered here. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Because he is experiencing a lot of yeah and I think maybe that's part of the hard part for me with Kaz is he's experienced a lot of trauma as a child and I don't think I would wish that on anyone either like I don't wish I had experienced the things I experienced when I was a child because it makes me stronger I'm not even sure I believe that so I don't know no answers yeah no mourners (laughs) you have to say the no funerals Wylan and his his ability to read inability yeah his inability to be to read being equated with intelligence or lack thereof by his father which is really problematic obviously obviously (laughs) but is also interesting because we don't know that until the end of the story and we just see this super smart character who's like making these explosives and doing like sciencey things (laughs) and I just assumed he's smart. Like he is smart. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah that's what I mean. <laughs> I assumed he is. And he is. Um, and his ability or an inability to read has like no bearing on that. But I do think in our society, if someone can't read, we assume they're unintelligent. And that is really unfortunate. Right. And I think another important thing that we can talk about here is how I mean, I guess society really only values you if you contribute mm-hmm. in in ways that are intelligible, pun right. intended. <laughs> you love my puns. <laughs> um, intelligible to like the society at large, right? right? So you have to generate a profit for someone or you mm-hmm. have to, I don't know, be able to contribute to the community in certain ways, um, in very limited ways versus, you know, people with mental illness or people who, you know, don't uh, have what we would consider traditional and traditional right like intelligence in the traditional sense right are somehow like not valued Mm -hmm. it's profoundly ableist and just not true like it shouldn't be true yeah and i read this as um while in probably having a processing disorder (laughs) Mm -hmm. um like dyslexia or dysgraphia i think me myself have seen some things come up with that not just recently but in the past year or so on twitter with if audiobooks count as reading oh, that really frustrating article that op-ed by in 
publication I will not mention because apparently they're trash now and don't like they just let anyone write an op-ed about how audiobooks don't count as reading. Obviously an illogical argument because you're getting the same information from it and like what do you do about Braille because they were making the argument that if you're not looking at a page using your eyes to read something. It was super ableist and I was really frustrated but canceled. If you want to read audiobooks, read audiobooks. You're getting the same story as the rest of us. You just process it differently. I listened to this audiobook, actually. Yeah, and I kind of wish I did because I don't know how to say the words. <laughs> it was an excellent audiobook that's a full cast. It's really cool. Yeah. So Kelly recommends the audiobook if you listen to audiobooks. There's so many tattoos in this novel. Oh, which I love. I love, <laughs> uh, love it. Already planning my next tattoos. And how we see them here is um, as marks of belonging. Mm-hmm. So for the gang tattoos, the dregs, the dime lines, razor goals, etc. Um, but they can also be marks of possession, mm-hmm. which was Inej's menagerie tattoo, for yeah. example. Yeah. We don't really see a lot of um, tattoos for fun in this story. I guess Kaz has his tattoo with his original last name, which I don't remember what it is. So right, Feld, right yeah. Weld or something. All I remember was that it was an R. Um but I guess that's kind of like a sense of belonging as well. Right. Or like holding on to the past. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of maybe what tattoos are. I don't know. Lots of mixed feelings about tattoos, <laughs> which I love. I love them. <laughs> I've seen a lot of really cool dregs tattoos. Oh, really? On, on Instagram. Yeah. People do like the no mourners, no, the, the crow in the cup and yeah. no mourners, no funerals. And... I know people are obsessed with the no mourners, no funerals thing. I've seen so there's a t-shirt company that does bookish t-shirts i think it's actually called bookish tees uh this is not a sponsorship (laughs) but they have (laughs) we don't have any sponsors so let (laughs) us know if you want to but also i don't like know if they're good people or whatever so like look into it before you start buying their shit um but they have like a cool shirt that has like a ship on it and it says no mourners no funerals this book offers important commentaries on addiction i would say Mm -hmm. perem the drug also, Jesper's gambling addiction and other people's gambling addictions. And we see people coming to the barrel to gamble and fuck and do drugs. And that's described in the novel as searching for oblivion and escape. This uh, struck me as very relevant to our contemporary moment, <laughs> late capitalist moment. And Mark Fisher in, Cap- in his book, Capitalist Realism, talks about um, how the conditions of late capitalism create or contribute to this quote unquote need for uppers and downers and escape and about how it makes it harder than to like break the wheel. Our world is trash. <laughs> we need Inez's to break the wheel. We, we messed up and can we please start over? It's a pretty low bar for body diversity, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Because Nina's basically just not described as skinny. Right. I don't think she's overtly described as fat. No, she can't fit into the costume that the person was wearing. She talks, but I mean, she can fit into it. It's just tight and very revealing. Yeah. Which maybe she doesn't want that. That's allowed. Yeah. I love the fan art, though, of Nina that I've seen online with like at actual big body. Mm -hmm. And she's not just like wave thin. And I also really love how Nina loves food. 
She's yeah. just so extra when it comes to food. And I identify <laughs> so hard with that. I'm like, uh, donuts. I love how she sneaks toffee as like one of her essential items. As you're like <laughs> making Instagram stories of you just eating brioche in your car. <laughs> I ate that whole bag of brioche. Good for you. Like, why not? Sorry, not sorry. All the bread, please. <laughs> yeah, not not a high bar, but good start. Yeah, I'll take it. Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about sexuality, asexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take some liberties and do some shipping of our own. Jesse, you get some enemies to lovers. I do, but I don't really like either of them. So Matthias or Nina? I like Nina by herself. I don't like her with Matthias necessarily. I don't really like him. He's like every ROTC dude I've ever met ever in college. And I'm just like, meh. <laughs> You know, like, that's all I could think of. <laughs> like, that was who, you know. Oh, my God, totally. Totally. You know, so I was just kind of, like, meh about Matthias. Yeah. Like, I'm sure he's hot or whatever, but I'm just, like, meh. Just some white dude with short hair and blue eyes. Like, and muscles. I'm like, that's fine, I guess. Not really my type. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> that's true. Um, Jesper and Wyland, we get maybe a gray sh- a gray <laughs> not gray well i don't know i don't know we don't know um but that's an it- asexuality spectrum term yeah for those who don't know <laughs> um but maybe a gay ship so i'm here for it but no i have comment because you haven't read crooked kingdom yeah yeah it's hard though because i well i'll talk about it later about the age of the characters but i don't really see them as being teenagers like i know that they are but i was like oh my god is jesper like 40 and then wyland is like 12 <laughs> like their age differences are like mm-hmm. kind of all fucked in my mind i don't i know that they're supposed to be all teenagers but to me in my head they're not that's that's my head canon so <laughs> i don't know it's like confusing for me <laughs> i have to remind myself they're teenagers we do have jesper on wyland on the one hand and then we also get i don't know if you caught this but there's a mention of jesper crushing on kaz did you get this? Oh, no, I didn't. So during the, when they're getting stripped down, right before the prison, oh, they go into the fjord. Right. And when they go into the fjord in prison, Jesper's like lamenting about how he, quote, didn't even get a good look at Kaz naked. <laughs> and is like sad about that. He has like yeah. a little moment of like, oh, womp Yeah, womp. you're so right. I have to say that um, this is terrible, but because I'm supposed to be reading the book critically for the for the podcast, but I was enjoying it so much. It was hard for me to like, do that a little bit you did have fewer notes this time <laughs> i have like one page of notes and then like a b- bunch of google notes that i make like in google keep but um yeah it was hard because i'm like i want to know what happens and i'm like reading really fast it was like my first ex- time the my first time reading akamath i yeah. wasn't really paying attention to the, the no. stuff so and i'm here to kill joy it for you you're welcome it's fine <laughs> it's, it's fine. fine we have kaz and Inej, and Inej says, I don't remember on which page because I just wrote it down real fast <laughs> and didn't take note. Uh, she says to Kaz, I will have you without armor, Kaz Brecker, or I will not have you at all. I'm not really attached to the pairing of the two of them, and maybe I'll feel differently later. I just really want Kaz and Inej to be happy, so like I'm here for their ship. Separately or together? Separately or together. I'm here for Inej's literal ship 
that yeah. she is going to have so that she can go fuck up all the slavers. And Kaz, is, Kaz isn't going to go do that, you know? No. So I have no... I, at this point in the novel, anyway. I, yeah. No spoilers. Yeah, thank promise. you. I don't have high hopes for them to... It's hard because I don't know what the next story is going to be. I'm assuming it's going to take place in that week that Vanek has given them to get Inej back. So I don't know that there's much room for this ship unless there are other stories. Or unless they're on Inez's ship. Anti-slavery ship. Yeah, maybe the book, like maybe Crooked Kingdom. These are all like my predictions. Maybe Crooked Kingdom will take place. Like half of it will be getting Inej back and then the rest of it will be them going to like take care of the quote-unquote crooked kingdom <laughs> so we'll see i don't know kelly can you say nothing see. i can't say anything i agree with you that i'm not too tied to this ship i think kaz is described as like super hot and totally my type yeah well, that's the problem <laughs> that's he's like problem 100 my type he checks all the boxes <laughs> <laughs> he's got that like haircut he's yeah. skinny he's <laughs> yeah tattooed tattooed he is like you know probably need some help like emotionally uh, he's emotionally unavailable yes very very that's like to the nth degree yeah it's what i look for in my favorite characters <laughs> exactly in my book boyfriends in my or book boyfriends yeah or girlfriends and my book partners my book partners no sexy times nope and no. that's fine there's so much other action going on that i didn't eat sex action yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, there was a ton of stuff happening in this book that I don't know where there would have been time for it. And it's maybe why I don't feel one way or the other about any of the ships necessarily, because there's too many other things going on for me to be worried about their romantic lives. Exactly, which is actually really refreshing for to yeah. have a YA that's not just throwing characters into a romantic relationship and like calling that a plot. Yeah, yes. Because we do get that often. All the time. Yeah, all the time. But so much is going on here. They don't have time for that. Like, I don't know how long this takes place over this story, but it can't be that long. Mm -mm. They're sailing. I guess they're sailing for a long time. Probably just a few weeks. Yeah. This particular story. But we don't have to see that. And I appreciated that. <laughs> I don't need to see. No boring travel journeys for Jesse. I don't need to see Matthias throwing up three times a day over the like side of the ship. Like that's not necessary. I only need to see it once. Mm -hmm. So thanks, Lee Bardugo. Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. As we were mentioning before, there's excellent pacing in this book. Twists and turns, surprises. Did you find that to be true? Yeah. From one moment to the next, I did not know what was going to happen. And it did incentivize me to read faster, which obviously led to me not taking as many notes because I really wanted to know what was going to happen because everything kept falling apart and then fixing and like, I don't know, it was it was really good. It was really well done. I appreciated it. So much intrigue. Everyone's hiding things from one another and like lying and Kaz never gives everyone all the information. And... Yeah. It was Once we got towards the end of the book, though, I did realize it was obviously Jesper that gave away the like the secret to Pekka Rollins like that. I I picked up on, but that was probably the only thing I could have predicted mm -hmm. in the whole story. I think one other aspect of the novel that lends itself to this really great reading experience is how Bardugo successfully navigates the perspectives of six different characters. She creates distinct voice for each one of them. And I, I think that also helps with the pacing. Mm -hmm. And I do think in other instances, I've read books where they didn't put the character title at the top, which was really frustrating to me. 
uh, because I didn't know who was talking and the voices weren't distinct enough for me to tell that, I think in this book I would have been fine. I also love the cover design and the black pages. It's just, it's so good. Black and red are my favorite colors because they're MCR colors from Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge. So this was like, if if I didn't, wasn't already going to read this book, if I saw it on the shelf, I would pick it up based on that alone, probably. I think Crooked Kingdom has red pages. Perfect. My other favorite color. <laughs> I feel like we come back to this a lot in the YA books we read um, about whether the book should be YA or not. And this is one of those books where I think maybe not. It's kind of on the cusp of YA and adult because of the terrible background of our cast of characters. We're supposed to believe that everything makes sense for them to be acting like adults. And by terrible, do you mean like traumatic? Like how violent and the awful yes. things that they've suffered? Yes, okay. but also how violent they are. And they're super mm. smart, like too smart to be 16 or 17 years old. I hear that. Mm-hmm. But keeping them that age allows the book to stay in the YA category. And I kind of get that. Especially if it's like a bridge novel to the Grisha trilogy, right. which was, I think, Definitely squarely YA. Yeah, yeah agreed. Um, I love the characters, but I think aging them up would have made them more believable to me. Like yeah. I said before, in my head, they're in their like 20s and 30s. And for some reason, Jasper is like 40 years old. <laughs> There's much more descriptive violence than I think we get in other YA books. The eye. The eyes. It was very it gave me like very like mountain in Game of Thrones oh, yeah. vibes. <laughs> for some reason, I was thinking of, um, what was the book we read? By R.F. Kuang. Oh, The Poppy War. Yeah, it wasn't as violent of The Poppy War. Oh, no. Obviously. I don't think anything is as violent I'm not as sure the I could War. stomach anything more than that. But it was like, it was very descriptive. And the scene where Kaz is using his dead brother's body as a raft. Oh, my God. I know. That was a lot. I was wondering what you were going to think about this. I mean, honestly, that wasn't too much for me. But mm-hmm. I could see how it could be too much for other people. Like, right. Kaz is literally on, like in a horde of dead bodies, like floating in a. I see why he he has very good reasons to have hypophobia. Yeah, I get it. Also, people are gross. Like I just get it all around. <laughs> <laughs> but it just was a lot, and I could see this being kind of traumatic to other readers. And maybe I think it maybe could have deserved a, a content warning. Yeah, the I think the only book that we have read with a content warning was Girls of Paper and Fire, right? Correct. And I I think more books should do that. And this one definitely merits one. I mean, that's why we put it at the beginning of our episodes. Yeah, I 100% agree. And yeah, I would really appreciate it if more books did that because I think it could also help it could one help readers decide what books that they should be getting for themselves. But as like a parent or a librarian or a teacher, it could probably help for like gauging where your students are at or, you know, um, your kids are at or whatever to decide what they should have for themselves. Recommend if you like heist movies, like a time heist, like Avengers Endgame, (laughs) (laughs) which you've seen three times. I have seen Avengers Endgames three times. I will not give any spoilers. I've only seen it twice. It's pretty good. I agree with your recommendation. Heist movies, or if you like any heist TV shows or mm-hmm. anything like that, this is, it's so action-packed. Six of Crows, highly recommend. I would recommend this to anyone, regardless of whether they were like YA yeah. people or not. You know what this book kind of reminded me of? Mm. An Oceans movie. Because mm. it's a team. Everyone has a different area of expertise. They're all trying to do something that's more or less impossible. Right. I think if you like Edgar Wright movies, then you would also enjoy this book. So, um, 
He did like Shaun of the Dead, but also Baby Driver. Those kind of movies where they're like kind of quirky cast of characters trying to do something that seems impossible and like kind of playful storytelling. I think you would like this book. I have no book recommendations. I don't think I've ever read a heist book before that I can think of. I could, not in recent memory. No. I don't read much mystery either, so. We know we, you just read YA and romance. It's okay. No shade. I read some nonfiction. I'm reading right, White Fragility right now. Getting that white perspective on their racism. <laughs> so fun. So fragile. Real talk. Before we end, let's talk about if this made you think of, like, change your perspective about anything or interrogate a concept or a system that you hadn't before. I thought this book did a really good job of showing this distinction between living versus surviving. So what it means to like thrive as a person versus surviving for the sake of not dying. And I think we kind of see that with pretty much all of our characters trying to balance out or coming from a place of trying to just survive into a place of thriving and living their life to the fullest. And Mm -hmm. maybe it's part of the reason because it's been kind of difficult for them to survive in the past that they live these kind of dangerous lives. They're doing dangerous things. They're taking risks with their lives um, and able to like create a better future. And I really appreciated that. What about you? One thing that I, that this book really challenged me on, or I guess pushed my thinking on is this relationship between science and magic. Mm -hmm. I love how the lines are so blurred with the small science and Grisha magic. I just think that is Um, a really fascinating and innovative magical system to use um, and to develop. Um, And I just nerd out over that stuff. I think it is so cool. Would you have taken Perem? Like Nina does at the end of the book? To like save everyone? Yeah. Yeah, I would have. But uh, um, yeah, I would have. (laughs) Would you? (laughs) Probably. I mean, it depends on who was there. <laughs> like, who am I trying to save? I guess myself, since I'm one of the people. Yeah? Yeah. The rest of them were just a bunch of Matthias's? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to JK It's Magic. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. And watch out for the occasional mini-sode about a range of fantasy-adjacent topics. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter at JKMagicPod. Post or tweet about the show using the hashtag CriticallyReading. Do you have an idea for a book that we should add to our TBR? Email us at JKMagicPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your suggestions. And check out our new TBR and future episode tab on the website. If you know someone who would enjoy the podcast, please, please spread the word. Uh, We would love to have a more active community of listeners so please reach out tweet at us like say hi to us on instagram email us we'd love to hear from you and you can subscribe to jk it's magic on the podcast app of your choice please please also rate and review the show it helps other people find us thanks to ellie the bookworm for all of your book suggestions that's right (laughs) jk it's magic is recorded on the land of cheyenne ute and arapaho native peoples until next time stay magical JK It's Magic is recorded on the land of Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho native peoples. Until next time, stay magical. <laughs> <laughs>